Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Abstract, colon, the future of science. Today, we have an extra special guest, as always, on the show. Super happy to have her here. She just finished her PhD, so super fresh off the academic journey. Without further ado, let us welcome Marielle Young onto the show. Marielle, how's it going? Good. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you for being here. Please let us know who you are and what it is that you do. Yeah, I'm Marielle Young. I am a recent PhD graduate from the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. Cool. I completed my bachelor's degree at the University of Arkansas and then did an MPhil, a one-year master's in human evolutionary studies from Cambridge University. And then I went on to Harvard, where my dissertation work focused on the evolutionary and developmental genetics of the pelvis and scapula, the hips and shoulders. And that I basically asked the question, what genes control the embryonic development of these skeletal structures? And how have those genes been under evolution in our human ancestors? Wow. Okay. So we have a lot to dive into. <laughs> uh, there are kind of three broad topics that I've kind of picked up on here. We have development, evolution, and genetics. Yeah. So you've kind of synthesized all of these in studying certain bone structures in the body. So first, how would you define these three terms, development, evolution, and genetics, in terms of how they relate to your PhD research specifically? Yeah. So let me start with genetics and say that my research looks at the heritability of skeletal traits. It looks at how the genes and regulatory portions of our genome, the switches that turn genes on and off, how are these passed from parent to offspring? And how do they control the development, so the actual building of skeletal structures? Like when you think about it, um, humans are born after a period of 40 weeks gestation. And during that 40 weeks, you're stitching together a human from basically nothing and your body needs an instruction manual. And so the genetics are the instruction manual and the development is actually the process of building the human. And so I'm looking at how do genetics code for this? How do our cells know how to put together something like a pelvis or a scapula, a hip uh -huh. or a shoulder? And then evolution comes into play because when we look at the diversity of species on Earth, and then specifically the diversity of species that humans are closely related to, so humans and other primates, our skeletons look pretty different in certain ways than a chimpanzee skeleton, even though they are our closest living relatives. And so we know that something different is going on with the genetics and the development of the skeleton in humans and chimpanzees. And so that's where the evolution comes in, is looking at how are they different, why are they different, and how have these processes and the instruction manual behind them, how have they changed between humans and chimpanzees? So in terms of comparing development and evolution, then development really we're talking about how these structures grow during the gestational period. Yes. So we're talking on the timeline, like you said, of 40 weeks, whereas evolution, we're talking about changes in how these structures have grown over the last tens, hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, millions of years. Millions of years, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm assuming that the pelvis came into existence at some point 
But before yeah. that, there was no such thing as a pelvis and no such thing as a scapula. Yeah. Do we even have any idea of, based on like fossil records or based on the evolutionary tree, like when these things actually came into existence? Yeah, fish from millions and millions of years ago. Uh, it's so it's so far beyond like my specific like niche of the last like six million years of human evolution. I don't even know the exact like year date that we would put mm -hmm. on the development or the evolution of the original like pelvis structures, but mm -hmm. there were certainly fish that had pelvic fins and a pelvis bone that would anchor it to its body. And then um, as there's a radiation of tetrapods on land, the pelvis and scapula became the important structures for anchoring our limbs to our bodies. Um, and when I say our, I mean tetrapods. So not just humans, but like every creature that's walking around on four legs, they need these structures to be able to move around, to be able to locomote, to be able to flex and extend their four limbs and hind limbs. So question, dinosaurs, I know some of them were on two legs. Mm. Did they have pelvises? I, yeah. I, I know you said you weren't sure when this arose, but if dinosaurs had pelvises, we're talking like not just 6 million years, but 60 million years. Yes. Yeah. Hundreds of millions of years, probably. But since, wow. since the evolution of these things in the early fish. Um, and so, so yeah, definitely dinosaurs had them. Birds have pelvis, like all, a lot of animals that you would think of like tend to have pelvis. Mm -hmm. What's the plural of pelvis? Pelvis. Pelvis, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure that we can use use a pluralization here and yeah. you know, what we're still talking about. So it's actually been almost a year since we had Daniela Marks on the show talking about bones. So let's maybe get a quick refresher. What are the What's like the basic process of building a bone? Like you said, before we're born, there are no... There are no bones. These things yeah. have to literally come into existence by virtue of our DNA, like you say, being the instruction manual that tells us how to do that. So yeah. what is that process like? Yeah, there are a couple different processes that can result in bone formation. But for most of the bones that we tend to think of that like make up our skeleton, it's a process called endochondral bone formation. Um, you also get intramembranous bone formation, so bone formation within a membrane, and that is usually your skull or a couple other random bones. But for most mm -hmm. of the bones we think of, like our arms, our legs, our pelvis, those will come from this endochondral bone formation, which is basically a mechanism by which your cells will first produce cartilage, and then the cartilage that exists before the bone will be replaced by bone. And so before you have a bony skeleton, you have a cartilaginous skeleton that is then Whoa. converted to bone. How close does that cartilaginous skeleton look to our full skeleton? Like, do we produce the full version of our skeleton essentially in cartilage form and then it all just kind of solidifies? Or is, is this very stepwise? It's not as stepwise as you would think. Like for my pelvis research, like when I'm looking at a mouse pelvis under the microscope when it is still in the cartilaginous stage, it just looks like a very miniature version of mm -hmm. the ultimate pelvis morphology. Um, so it's a pretty close approximation. Your long bones will be a little bit different. So what happens with a long bone, like the bones of your arms or your legs, you'll have the cartilaginous precursor that will be ossified. So it will be like hardened into actual bone. And what will happen is it will grow outward as you grow, like throughout your whole childhood juvenile period until you reach your final adult height or your adult stage. You'll just have like the cartilaginous ends of the bones are pushing outward until the growth plates fuse and that bone has reached maximum length. There are growth plates inside of my bone. This is like where the new bone comes out of? 
Yeah, it's where it's where new cartilage is put. You have different zones of cartilage, like different types of cartilage cells uh -huh. behaving in different ways. And uh, they push outward from the end of the bone. And then as that stage progresses, the different zones of cartilage will get ossified. And so once there's no more cartilage there at the end of the bone, it's all become ossified. It's all entirely bone and it's done growing. What, like, what's the differentiating factor between cartilage and bone? Like what's the, what's the piece de resistance that, that, that finishes that transformation? Um, the ossification that I keep referring to, and yeah. so the chemical makeup of how much calcium, how much how, the minerals that are within it, and just mm -hmm. the overall organic substance that makes it up. Yeah, I, I think it's it's easy to forget that our bones are like are just made of minerals. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're all like, oh, if you want to have a good diet, you should be having your vitamins and minerals. But it's like minerals. It's it's like in my bones. Yeah, that's that's, that's why we tell people to take calcium and stuff because you have so much calcium in your bones, and so if your body is low on calcium, you'll start to kind of rob your bones of it. So there's a lot of bones in the human body. Um, what drew you to the pelvis and scapula as, a, as opposed to, let's say, the fibula and the metatarsals? Well, I was interested in the skeleton overall. I would say my first introduction to all this was just the fact that I was so interested in human evolution. So much of what it means to be a human can be traced through our evolution. So we know that humans and chimpanzees, the two lineages that gave rise to these modern species, split sometime like six to eight-ish million years ago. And mm -hmm. since then, we have these six to eight million years worth of fossils that track the evolution of humans. And so we have all of these different species that are human ancestors or human cousins or something along those lines. Like we don't have the genetic information to piece together the exact evolutionary relationships, but we know there are all these different species walking around that had different degrees of humanness as they evolved. And so that's where I was so interested was in the fossils and in like what they could tell us about where we come from. So there were multiple different species of human alive at the same time? I mean, it depends on how you define human. Like, uh -huh. if you're defining human as homo sapiens, then no, we're the only humans. But if you're defining human as something more closely related to us than to chimpanzees, yes, there were definitely many that could have been alive at the same time, even, even quite recently. We know humans coexisted with Neanderthals, with Homo uh -huh. erectus, with quite a few species just in the last, like, few hundred thousand years, which is okay. sounds like a lot, but is quite <laughs> recent in evolutionary time. <laughs> So I was so interested in these fossils. And the thing about fossils is they're usually bones. Our mm -hmm. skeleton is the part of our body that tends to fossilize the best. Yeah. And so when we're looking at the remains of a species from 4 million years ago, chances are those remains are bones. And so, mm -hmm. so much of the evolutionary story is a skeletal story. And so that's where I first got interested in bones. And then from there, I became more and more interested in the pelvis specifically because First of all, it is very different between humans and chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. If you look at a human skeleton versus a chimp skeleton, they look very, very similar. Our arms, our legs, our chest cavity, like all these things look quite similar. The skull looks different, but I think even to like an untrained observer, before you even noticed the skull differences, the thing that you would notice is different is the pelvis. How can we like visualize that difference specifically? A chimp pelvis is quite tall. So if you if you think about like your skeleton or a human skeleton, um, you can think about like your bottom rib 
is several inches above the top of your pelvis. So you've got okay. this empty belly cavity that uh -huh. doesn't have bones in it. And so just rock this, hard abs. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've got this separation between your upper body, your like chest cavity and your lower body, your pelvis. They're completely uh -huh. in, in humans, we call it decoupled. Um, uh -huh. But if you look at a chimpanzee skeleton, their lower lowermost rib is like an inch above their pelvis. So their pelvis is really tall and their pelvis is like practically butting up against its rib. And so what that allows us to do as humans and why it's important to have this decoupling is it means we can move our upper body independent of our lower body. And so like you can sit there and if you're sitting still in a chair, you could twist your upper body, like you could twist your shoulders from side to side and the part of you that's sitting down in the chair, like your legs, your lower body, that's not gonna move at all. A chimpanzee could never do that. <laughs> yeah, a chimpanzee has to move its whole body. So chimpanzees wouldn't be very good at yoga. No, they'd be terrible. <laughs> they could do like downward chimp and that's yeah, basically yeah. it. Yeah. Our upper body is much more flexible, independent of our lower body. And what that does is it allows us to be standing and walking on our two legs. And even as our lower body is like shifting with every step, our upper body is staying facing forward. So as we're walking forward, <laughs> we can keep an eye on what's ahead of us versus if a chimp was going to walk, it would have like a cowboy type swagger where it's like moving his whole <laughs> body back and forth with every step. And that all comes down to the pelvis. It doesn't sound like a pelvis is a very unassuming thing and people uh -huh. I don't think know how important it is with every step we take. Step you take if we're walking, if we're running, if we're jumping, like anything we need to do, like the pelvis needs to be able to facilitate that movement. Walking on two legs versus walking on four legs is like the defining difference between humans and chimpanzees. Walking on two legs made us who we are. And that difference is facilitated by this physiological difference between the pelvises. Yes, yes. So it's not just like it's the height. So a human pelvis is shorter. A human pelvis is also, it's kind of a bowl shape. A chimp pelvis is really flat. And all of this allows for different um, muscle attachments. It allows basically another big difference between a human and a chimp is that our butt muscles are way bigger. If you think of like the human like gluteus maximus and all of that, we have a very impressive gluteus maximus. Like a chimp has barely anything. Uh, and so, I don't have the most impressive gluteus maximus, but I've seen some pretty impressive ones myself. So I'm going to take your word for it. Yeah especially if you're running, but also if you're walking, you're using that, you're using your gluteal muscles. And so those gluteal muscles need a, a big bone with a lot of attachment area for those muscles to anchor to. Chimps don't uh -huh. have that. We do. What does this bowl do for us that the flat one, does, like, why is it more bowl shaped? It also, if you think about like sitting upright or standing upright, walking upright, like any upright movement that humans have, which is, you know, most of the time, if we're not mm -hmm. laying down, we need to support all of our internal organs. We've got a lot of like guts that we don't Whoa. want. Yeah. Like I, our I pelvis always... is supporting, it's, it's, it's literally a bowl containing our entire viscera. Yeah. Yeah. For oh, the most part. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so we, we needed to make sure that our guts don't fall out of our butts. <laughs> like, um, and so like they don't need the same support for their internal viscera that humans do because we are vertical and they are horizontal. I, I honestly never could even have imagined 
how many different effects the shape and the the morphology of the pelvis has on so many things. Right? One thing we haven't spoken about is how it affects the birthing process. Yeah. So yeah. we obviously, you know, a lot of your research, like you said, was about development. And we are going to touch on the genetics a, a little bit more shortly. I, I, I do just want to know, one of the things that, that I do know about the pelvis is that human babies are born quite premature. Even if they're not labeled as premature, you know, babies are born without the ability to do much. Because yeah. if because they're, they have to pass through the birth canal. Yeah, right? they're especially helpless. Yeah, like the morphology of our pelvis have to allow for them to pass yes. while keeping us alive and them. So yeah, yeah. Can you talk about like just about that a little bit? Yeah. So I think a lot of people, if you were to ask like what's unique about humans or what's special about humans, like the thing that comes to mind maybe before walking upright is our intelligence. We are, mm -hmm. you know, there's no other species that's gonna sit around and listen to a podcast um, and like understand it. And so we are so unique in our cognitive abilities and in like everything that makes us who we are in terms of like culture and knowledge and awareness and sympathy and all of these things that humans are uniquely capable of. And that all stems from having a big brain that is cognitively powerful. But I like to point out that we would not have these big brains if we didn't first have our pelvis because it kind of started a feedback loop where having the pelvis and being able to walk and run enabled our ancestors to get more calories. And calories are kind of the currency of evolution. Like the more calories you have, the more you can use them to pay for the development of other structures, like metabolically pay, because a brain is very expensive, metabolically speaking. Like it takes so many calories to keep a brain running. Um, yeah. And then yes, like as you point out, we have big brains and we are also born with big brains. And so a human baby is very big headed. So oh, yeah. recent research seems to suggest that our pelvis was always kind of big enough for birth to occur. There was this idea that the pelvis was a compromise, that the pelvis had to be wide enough to give birth, but narrow enough to have efficient bipedal locomotion, walking on two legs. And so there seems to be more recent research that suggests that, first of all, a narrow pelvis is not necessarily more energetically efficient, and also that by the time it had evolved to its like relatively current state and by the time that human infants had evolved to have their relatively current state of a huge brain, that the passage was still accommodated. But it's still a very hot area of research. Like there's a lot of questions about it. It's called the obstetric dilemma. Um, and mm, that's how it's okay. termed in academic circles. And yeah, there are a lot of like pelvis researchers that are very curious about it and that are looking into like the evolution of human birth and how the pelvis was or was not affected by it. I'm definitely getting a, a much better sense of why you and why anybody would want to study the pelvis. It's right in the middle of our body. Yes. It's the center of so many processes and yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, I feel like yeah, when, when people amazing. are like, oh, what are you studying? I'm like, oh, the pelvis. I feel like it's usually an underwhelming reaction. Yeah. I, I have to be like, but let me explain. <laughs> That's why we're here. One takeaway, just like a, a slogan for the episode so far, um, humans, colon, big brains, big booty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking right now. Big brains, big booty. <laughs> I'm tempted to ask about the scapula. Could we just like briefly touch on the scapula? Because I, I do want to get to the genetic component, but please, let's not forget about the shoulder blades. Yeah, of course. So the pelvis and scapula are two things that are like so alike and yet so different. 
They're under similar developmental control. So we know there are a lot of genes that are active in both of them. And we know they have this similar function of anchoring our limbs to our bodies. So the scapula anchors our arms, the pelvis anchors our legs, they have these things in common. But obviously humans use our arms very differently than we use our legs. Like Speak our- for yourself. our arms are not like we're not walking around on our arms we're not doing so many things our legs do but we are doing a ton of other stuff like i do not mess around on my phone using my toes maybe Uh maybe other people do you're missing out (laughs) yeah with this in mind i decided to also include the scapula in my research as kind of a compare and contrast of like Mm -hmm. look at okay what is shared what is conserved between these two bones and also what is different And we also expect the pelvis to have been under stronger selection, like because the pelvis was so important in the change of locomotion style, that would have been a bigger change evolutionarily than anything our arms went through. So our arms then are, you would say, more similar, like our arm slash shoulder complex is more similar to that of a chimpanzee than if we're comparing the legs. Yes, it's more similar. Um, It is changed a bit. And so when you think of like the different ways that humans and chimpanzees are using their arms, a chimpanzee is swinging from trees primarily. And so they do a lot of overhead movement, like they're hanging from a branch or swinging Uh from a branch. And we do fewer overhead things. Like most of the time, our hands are down in front of us. They're holding our phones or typing on our laptops or using a knife to cut up a salad or like what any any number of things that our hands do throughout the day is usually in front of us rather than above our heads and so the orientation of our shoulders has changed a bit and so where a chimpanzee scapula kind of is angled upward a little ours is angled more to our sides so that our arms can hang at our sides and our hands can be positioned in front of us. So what you're saying is that my 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 scapula is not well suited for me to slice up a salad above my head. Exactly, exactly. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, and so the big difference that humans do that chimps don't do that we've that I've alluded to a bit here is like all of our hand movements. And so mm-hmm. when you compare human hands to chimp hands, they are quite different, but the scapula itself less so. Okay. Just quickly, how do we actually classify the pelvis and scapula? Like what what type of bone is that? They are girdles. Girdles. Oh, nice. Another great word. Yeah. Girdle bone. Okay. Yeah. As opposed to like, so you already mentioned long bones. Long bones. That's the official name for them? Like the the femur, the tibia, the fibula, the ulna, the radius, the humerus. Yep. Excellent. Well done. (laughs) Got them all. Yay. Excellent. So girdles. Love it. Okay, so you actually were just touching on the genetics. I I know that the study genetics can get very complicated because a lot of genes have complicated names. But how would you best describe the role of our genetics in producing these structures compared to other structures in our body? What's maybe different or unique about the process of genetic construction of bones versus genetic construction of other biological material? As someone who's so skeletal focused, I guess I don't do a lot of like comparison between Mm -hmm. non-skeletal, like I literally throughout my PhD, all of the genetics research I've done has just been pelvis scapula. And so in terms of like how bone genetics will be different than the rest of the body, I think it's, I think the overall 
processes and growth is quite similar. Like it's just like the exact genes that are active will be different. And so you'll have genes that have a specific role in the pelvis and they might not be active in even another bone, but maybe even another organ or something along those lines. And so for me, so much of my research has been focused on the specific genes that are active and then beyond just the genes, also the regulatory portions of the genome that turn genes on or off. So there is this distinction then in our DNA. There are genes that do things and there are genes that choose when other genes do things? It's not the genes themselves that are choosing when other genes do things, but it is, um, we call them regulatory portions. We, I can I call them switches sometimes. Sure. Uh, and they are just parts of our DNA that are not genes. And uh -huh. so a gene is part of the DNA that is ultimately producing a protein. And those are actually pretty small parts of our DNA. Like we've got our DNA is a very, very long sequence of code, mm -hmm. and some of that code is functional at times in terms of producing RNA and producing proteins, but that's really actually a minority of the DNA itself. There are big stretches of the sequence that are between genes, and so they're not a gene themselves. They're just sequence. They're not producing RNA. They're not producing protein, and so that was kind of where they got the misnomer of being like junk DNA where for a long time people thought they were doing literally nothing. But uh -huh. a lot of these portions of junk DNA that are not, they're not genes, they're not coding, but what they're doing, we're learning more and more, is that they are turning genes on or off. Not all of your genes are on in all of your organs all of the time. You mm -hmm. could have a gene that is on in your brain during development, and then it shuts off, and but maybe it turns on again in your eyeball later on in life. This is so interesting. This sounds really similar to the misunderstanding that only 10% of the brain is actually used. That's yeah. not the case. Maybe yeah. at any given time, 10% of the neurons in your brain are firing because if more than that were firing, it would be akin to having a seizure. Yes. In this case, it isn't that we have junk neurons or junk DNA. We just have DNA that's not constantly doing stuff everywhere in the body. And you know what? I'm really glad you mentioned this because I've interviewed lots of people talking about genes and I've gone through lots of science in my life. Yet for some reason, up until four minutes ago, I, I, I thought that all of DNA was just gene followed by gene followed by gene. Yeah, no. And, it's, like, and it's, it isn't. Yeah, there's big stretches of not genes in between the genes. Which are still very important for the functioning of our bodies. Yeah. And so... Amazing. Basically, the ones that I look at that are termed enhancers. And so basically they have a function in turning a gene on, mm -hmm. typically. The way that works is like it's a complicated like kind of chemical, physical process of like molecular binding and all these things. But basically what they do is like if you envision the DNA as a string, you need certain molecules to come bind to that string and turn a gene on. And so if you have an enhancer kind of at one end of the string, there can be an actual like looping mechanism where that enhancer can loop over to the gene, bring the molecular machinery to start chugging along and turn that gene on. And so it's an actual like 3D origami situation of moving around the DNA and allowing certain genes to be activated. And something as simple as the 
sequence itself, the DNA sequence of the switch or of the enhancer can affect its ability to bind to the molecular machinery that will turn a gene on. And so if you affect the sequence of an enhancer, the result could be that a gene does not get turned on or it gets turned on later or it doesn't get turned on as often. Like it, and that ultimately affects how much protein is produced. And protein is really like the building block of our whole bodies. And so if you're affecting like this really finely tuned thing of how much protein is getting produced by just changing the sequence of DNA that may be really far from the gene, but it's still being affected, that could ultimately result in changes to pelvic anatomy. Thank you for bringing it back to the pelvis once <laughs> yeah. again. Excellent way to just tie things off. I'm very happy that we covered the evolutionary, the genetic, the developmental. That was the yeah. goal we kind of set out at, at the beginning to kind of cover all these things and wrap them all up. You did an excellent job of that. To close the, the episode off today, I, I want you to just tell myself and the listeners what we can do starting right now in our lives that can improve our lives based on the information that you were learning about and studying in your PhD. How can it change our lives for the better? What kind of action can we take right now? Oof. Um, first of all, the thing that comes to my mind it is a bit age specific, but we can strengthen our bones and we can build stronger skeletons up to a point. And it's kind of an age limit. And so if you're like under your mid 20s, the more exercise you do, the more uh, work you put in to strengthen your skeleton, that's going to have like lifelong benefits. But past that, obviously, it's still important to exercise. But unfortunately, there's kind of an expiration date of like your body is going to stop strengthening your skeleton at this point, and it's all downhill from here. And so if you're like me, and you're 30 years old, the ship has sailed a little bit. (laughs) Um, What about 27? A lot of our listeners are are between the age of like 18 and 27. Do they still have hope? Please, 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 please. please. I think they probably do. Yeah, it's probably like tailing off, but probably still, absolutely still so many benefits to exercise. And you probably still get like the very last bits of this specific one in terms of strengthening your skeleton. So work now so that you don't break your hip when you're 80. Perfect. Take care of that booty. Yeah. (laughs) Use your brain. Take care of your booty. Exactly. Uh, So many taglines that we've got today. Amazing. Okay. Thank you so much for explaining all this. I know that there were certain things that totally changed for me, like the fact that the DNA is not all genes and also that the pelvis is as crazy involved in all of these different things that we do from walking and its evolution. It's awesome. So yes. many cool things today. Yeah, so this was I'm, a real I'm so pleasure. excited to talk about it. I'm always like, I feel like I'm like a one woman like hype show for the pelvis. <laughs> like <laughs> Totally, totally. Yeah. And I hope that that hype just spreads through the community. And really the reason why we have this show is so people like me and like anyone interested in science can hear about these awesome things that are inside of our own body that yeah. we don't even, that we just take for granted every single yeah. day. So with thank every, you so with much. With every step you take, think about the millions of years that went into it. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you so much, Marielle. It's been a real pleasure. Have an awesome afternoon. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available 
on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.